Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jeremy Smith. I'm one of the lay elders here at Grace, uh, and we're going to be continuing to hear from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, today won't be the end of our series, but it is the last day in the Beatitudes, so we'll be reading from Matthew 5, 8 through 12. But just to review some of the themes that Doug has preached about so far, the Sermon on the Mount can be thought of as Jesus' manifesto, his goal and his aims for his kingdom. And we should remember that there is an already and not yet aspect to this kingdom. While there are aspects of the kingdom that won't be fully realized until the new heavens and the new earth, the kingdom is already here at hand. And there are callings and blessings and promises that are true for us right here and right now. We also need to remember the call to repent. Doug mentioned at the beginning of the series that some people have wrongly read the Sermon on the Mount and its high demands and thought it as rhetorical flourish, as impossible. Remember Matthew 5, 48, be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. But we cannot evade or downplay what God is calling us to do. No dodging, no excuses. He is describing his perfect and holy will for us, and we need to strive with spirit-empowered obedience to do everything that he's calling us to do and to be. What God calls us to do, he also empowers us to do. And we cannot hope to obey Jesus without first realizing that we can't obey him on our own. Pastor Ray Ortland is fond of saying that we need to come to Jesus with empty hands because Jesus can really do something with empty hands. So if you start to feel hopeless with what you hear today, what God is calling you to do, don't lose heart. Remember the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is where you belong. We are all poor in spirit. And God is with us, and he will be with you. Lastly, remember what being blessed means. It has a couple connotations. Uh, being blessed means to have God's approval. Uh, you're happy, you're fortunate, uh, you're blessed if you receive God's approval. It also has the, the connotation of flourishing, that if we do these things that God is calling us to do, if we walk in his way, if we walk according to his kingdom, that we will experience flourishing just the way that God has made life to work when we walk in his footsteps. Some of that is in this life, and some of that flourishing will be in the life to come. All right, let's read Matthew 5, 8 through 12. <clears throat> Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We hear three main blessings in these verses. Blessed are the pure in heart, Blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We're going to take a look at each one of those and the callings and the blessings and the promises that God is giving to those who belong to his kingdom. First blessing, 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When we hear pure in heart, we probably think of personal purity, and maybe we even think about uh, what we just talked about in the sexuality series, and, and that kind of purity. And that's not untrue, but Jesus is going after something deeper here. Remember, when the Bible talks about our heart, it's talking about our deepest desires and motivations. Commentator J.T. Pennington notes that the phrase pure in heart is getting at the idea of being united or wholeness or singular-minded. It's the idea that our hearts shouldn't be mixed together with a little bit of Jesus over here and a little bit of other stuff over there. Our hearts should be purely and solely devoted to Jesus, and our actions reflect that. Jesus is calling us to have not just a place for him in our hearts, but that he should be the only thing in our heart. Jesus is saying we cannot have a mixed heart. We must serve him with a whole heart and ruthlessly pluck out the weeds of selfish desires that come from pursuing our own personal kingdom. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have a lot of weeds in our hearts. It is so easy to get wrapped up in our personal kingdom, pursuing the things our heart wants. Money, relationships, entertainment, sex. Worried that we won't get those things that we want or that we think we need, and angry when we're prevented from getting them. Jesus is calling us to be all in for his kingdom, not our own. Being pure in heart also has the idea of integrity. Is our whole self acting in unison? In other words, do your actions in private match up with what you say your heart is about in public? Do you put on a mask in public or at church to be on your best behavior when people are watching? We are called to have our hearts match our actions in public and in private, and the promise or the blessing here is that those who do will have, they shall see God. And seeing God is the idea of perceiving and experiencing him. And this makes sense because if we are distracted by our own selfish desires and personal kingdom, God is often the last thing on our minds. And maybe he just pops in from time to time, Sunday mornings or when we're we're with our Christian friends. But brothers and sisters, we can't flourish without purity of heart and seeing and experiencing God on a daily basis. The Bible says we are sojourners in the wilderness, and we're only refreshed when we eat his food and drink his waters. So how do we do that? We've gotten clues from earlier in the Beatitudes. We need to come poor in spirit, knowing that our hearts are a complete mess and full of rubbish. We mourn our sin and selfishness, because we know our heart should be for God and his kingdom alone. And we hunger and thirst for righteousness, for his word and for what he says is good and right, for what we know we don't have, but we know we need. We need to repent. And we need to know that we have God's beautiful promised blessings, that we belong here, that God is our master gardener, and he will weed our hearts. He comforts us, he forgives us, 
He wipes clean our guilt. He fills us with what we are lacking. What we can't provide on our own, he works into our hearts, making our hearts and minds closer and closer to the image of his son, being renewed through his word and through our prayers. Brothers and sisters, we need to strive to be pure in heart, to be single-minded in our devotion to Jesus and his kingdom calling, and we will see and experience God. Second blessing, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We could do a whole sermon series on what the Bible says about peace, but we just want to talk about a few things this morning. We are called to make peace. In other words, peace isn't something that's random or passive. It's something that we have to actively do and work toward. And when we, when we obey this calling, it says that we will be called sons of God. In Hebrew culture, being called the son of someone or something meant that you were like them in character. God is a peacemaker. And if we are like our Heavenly Father, we will be doing his work, walking in his ways, and reflecting the family image when we are peacemakers ourselves. But what does it mean to make peace? In our modern English language, we usually think of two things when we hear the word peace either the absence or stopping of conflict, or a state of mind or a state of being that's very calm and tranquil. And both of those are part of what the Bible means when it talks about peace. But when Jesus spoke these words to his mostly Jewish audience, they would have had a much richer idea of what Jesus means when he says that we are to be peacemakers. In the Greek version of the Old Testament that Jesus would have used, The New Testament word for peace is the same one that the Old Testament uses as shalom. Jews for Jesus describes shalom like this. Shalom denotes completion or wholeness of entering into a state of wholeness and unity, a restored relationship. It also conveys a wide range of nuances, fulfillment, completion, maturity, soundness, wholeness, harmony, tranquility, security, well-being, welfare, friendship, agreement, success, and prosperity. So we see shalom is much, much more than just the absence of conflict or something that's calm. Shalom means that things are complete and whole. They are as they should be. When God first put Adam and Eve in the garden, there was shalom. When God brings about the new heavens and the new earth, shalom will once again fill the earth. But shalom is not just for the Garden of Eden and not just for the new heavens and the new earth. We see commands for God's people to pursue peace and to make peace throughout the Bible, just as God himself is the one who brings peace. And we see this so clearly in the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Don't miss the fullness of what peace means in the kingdom of heaven that Jesus said is already at hand. We often think of the way that we have peace with God through Jesus, and that is absolutely part of what it means that Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. He turns enemies and rebels of God into sons and daughters. But don't miss what Matthew records for us in chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, 
those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. The good news of Jesus bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth meant that he was bringing the full healing, restorative, reconciling power of shalom with him. And he was calling people to repentance and reconciled right relationship with God and bringing healing, wholeness, well-being, rightness to people's broken and hurting bodies, minds, and spirits. So if that's the fullness of what peace is, God's peace, what does it look like for us to be peacemakers? Let's unpack that a little bit further. There were two, the two themes that several commentators focused on that we'll talk about this morning. And particularly, since the Beatitudes have several callbacks and allusions to the Old Testament prophets, who frequently spoke out against the people for their injustice and unrighteousness that led to breaking shalom, this should remind us of what Doug taught about last week, that we need to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness as God's kingdom people. And that word for righteousness in the Old Testament is often used to refer to everything that God says is good and right and caring for those who are hurting, oppressed, or vulnerable. And we see from passages like Isaiah 32, 16, and 17 that the product of righteousness will be peace. In other words, righteousness actively creates the conditions for peace and ministers to and restores those who are suffering from a lack of shalom. That means that as we seek to make peace, our mission field here is enormous. Anywhere we see broken shalom, things that are not right, injustice, oppression, broken relationships, conflict, hurting people, and those lost in their sin, and even when things don't seem quite as dire, but where there is a lack of health, wellness, harmony, prosperity, we are called to make those situations better, to work towards shalom. We may not have been responsible, we may have been responsible for the brokenness because of something we did, or we may have just stumbled upon it. But we are responsible to obey this peacemaking call. I'll just add briefly that some of you may be thinking to yourself, this seems impossible. And it is. How can I possibly bring shalom to all the brokenness I see around me? Maybe this even seems like we're preaching some type of utopian-style call where we expect to fix all the brokenness and wrongness this side of heaven. And it's true that we will never have perfect shalom this side of heaven. But that doesn't take away our calling to do all that we can and all that God empowers us to do to make peace. And this is just like our personal sanctification. We know that we will always sin. We know that we will never be fully rid of our sin this side of heaven. But we still strive for spirit-powered obedience. We strive to put off sin and put on righteousness. And that's the same calling here. We know we won't be able to make perfect peace, but the calling is to strive for it. Commentator R.K. Hughes observed two elements of peacemaking that we'll focus on this morning. Number one, peacemakers will be honest 
about the true status of peace and the world around them, and number two, will have a willingness to sacrifice and risk pain in pursuing peace. As peacemakers, we need to soberly assess the state of shalom in our lives, whether that's in relationship with God, relationship with others, or society more broadly. What does it look like when we're not honest about the status of shalom? Maybe it's us failing to share the gospel with the lost because we don't acknowledge their eternal danger. Maybe it's when we ignore strained or broken relationships and tell ourselves that everything's fine. It is what it is. Or maybe it's when we ignore or downplay the misery and brokenness of the world around us because people don't have it that bad. Could be worse. Jeremiah calls out such wrong thinking when he says to the people of Judah that they were proclaiming peace, peace, when there is no peace. In our lives, we might be guilty of this when we say things like, things aren't that bad in our relationship. That's just how life works in a fallen world. Or it would just be worse or messy if we got involved. We men can be particularly guilty of this when we know that there's something strained or broken in a relationship, but instead of wisely and lovingly engaging to restore shalom, we leave it alone and hope it blows over. Hope the other person gets over it. Maybe we even internally accuse them of of overreacting or making too big a deal out of something. Our call as peacemakers isn't to make excuses or to say that things are actually okay the way that they are. That's not making peace. That is ignoring or drowning out the cries of the broken and the hurting. Just like we need to be poor in spirit and mourn over both our own sin and the sin of the world around us, we need to have a true and sober assessment of the brokenness of the world and its lack of shalom and move to bring peace in order to bring wholeness, healing, restoration, and reconciliation. Similarly, peacemakers need to be willing to risk pain and willing to sacrifice to make peace. Peacemaking isn't free. Peacemaking will always cost us something. We see this throughout the Bible, but nowhere so clearly in the example of Christ, who brought about peace only through his sacrificial life and death on our behalf. And when we obey his call to be peacemakers ourselves, we will encounter pain and sacrifice. It is painful to admit our own failings and guilt when we pursue peace. It is painful to deal with the sensitivities and baggage and wounds of others. It's hard to put others' needs before our own, especially if it costs us something. Peacemaking is fraught with misunderstandings and missteps and even outright antagonism. And not only that, but we have our own sins of pride and defensiveness and self-righteousness and anger that hamper and damage our efforts. We often bring more heat than light and bring loudness and forcefulness rather than humility and gentleness and swing a hammer of condemnation rather than extend a hand of mercy. 
To be a peacemaker, we need to be willing to risk pain and sacrifice in our pursuit of peace. And we need to cry out for help to the Prince of Peace who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We need to look at our heart and ask how well we're doing in pursuing and making shalom. Do we strive to understand one another? Are we honest about the true state of broken shalom around us? And are we brave enough to step forward, to humbly and gently and persistently hunger and thirst for righteousness that leads to bringing shalom and healing, restoration, and peace to those around us. Third blessing. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice that we can be persecuted not only for our faith in God, but also for our righteousness. Tony Evans says, to be persecuted because of righteousness is to be mistreated because you display the kingdom characteristics described in Matthew 5, 3 through 9. Some people won't like you for doing so. Persecution may take a variety of forms and come from a variety of sources, your family, an employer, the culture, the government, but in receiving it, you'll be in the company of a class of people of whom the world is not worthy. The Bible tells us to expect persecution because of our faith and because of righteousness. Whether that be acting in mercy, peacemaking, or any other manifestation of righteousness, and that persecution can be not just physical harm or exclusion, but it's also when they mock you or say evil things about you. But perhaps the most amazing thing in these verses is the fact that if Jesus says, if this happens to you, you are blessed and rejoice and be glad. <laughs> no one believes that. How is that possible to rejoice and be glad in persecution? Let me give you two reasons that may help us train our hearts so that we can rejoice when we are persecuted. And then I also want to talk about two warnings here for when we're persecuted. But here are the two reasons that we can rejoice and be glad when we are persecuted. Uh, and first, we don't have to rejoice and be glad that we're suffering. God isn't calling us to some kind of masochism where we enjoy the pain that comes from persecution. When faced with the pain of the cross and God's wrath, even Jesus was in such turmoil that he sweat drops of blood and prayed and asked God to remove this cup from him even while he was submitting himself to the will of the Father. But one reason we can rejoice in persecution is because it is a mark that we are being a faithful follower of Christ. We are being like the prophets of old and we are following in Christ's footsteps of pain, persecution, and sacrifice. Jesus promised that just as he faced persecution, so would his disciples. And there is honor and comfort and glory and knowing that we are echoing what our Savior did for us and picking up our cross and joining him in that work. The second reason comes from verse 12. 
Great is your reward in heaven. This blessing is certainly more future-oriented, but it's the same reality that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 14, 4, 7 through, 17 through 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We can trust God's promise that whatever we may suffer on account of righteousness or on account of his name, we are in the company of the saints of old and of Jesus himself. And the eternal reward that we will receive in heaven is so great in comparison that it'll cause us to leap for joy. Okay, so what two warnings about persecution do we see here? We see a warning for those who never experience persecution and a warning for those who suffer not because of their faith or righteousness, but because of their own sin. For the first category, you may have heard these verses and thought to yourself, gosh, I can't really think of the last time that someone persecuted me or, or said something evil about me or mocked me. And if that's true, then these verses should cause you to do some serious self-reflection. If you never experience any persecution because of your faith or righteousness, you need to ask yourself, are you living out a faithful and bold witness, both speaking the truth that God has revealed to us in his word and working indeed to be a merciful peacemaker in the world around you? Because if you are, you will eventually encounter persecution. Someone will tell you that you shouldn't believe those foolish, closed-minded things. Someone will tell you that you shouldn't be showing mercy to those people or trying to work for peace in that situation. Someone will mock you and mistake your gentleness for weakness and your hunger and thirst for righteousness for prudishness. And if you never experience those things, you need to ask yourself, am I faithfully living out my faith or am I hiding my light under a basket, like Jesus talks about in the next verses? This is a very real and present temptation in our current age. It is far easier to fly under the radar and retreat to a Christian bubble, but that is dodging what God has called us to do. He has called us to make disciples of all nations and to let our light shine before others so that all may see our good works and give praise to our Father in heaven. The other warning is found in the caveat that this blessedness comes from persecution that you experience wrongly. Peter talks about this same dynamic when he tells believers to rejoice when they suffer on account of Jesus, but not to suffer because of their own sin. In other words, some of us will suffer not because of our righteousness or faith, but because we're being jerks. We may even be saying or doing true things, but we can still do it in a way that's devoid of the humility and gentleness and mercy that Jesus has been calling us to. And if you found yourself internally shaking your head at those people who never experienced persecution, this section is probably for you. We see just as big a temptation in today's world to be brawlers. The one who is loudest, hits hardest, pulls no punches, fights for his side, and demonizes the enemy. That is who is celebrated. 
All you have to do is look on Facebook or Twitter to see this in action. But we're not supposed to fight the way the world fights. We're supposed to have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The gospel is offensive on its own terms. It tells people that they are hopelessly lost and need Jesus. That's not what we're talking about here. But maybe you add to its offensiveness with how you engage and relate to the world. Maybe you swing God's word around like an ax, condemning the world and sinners. Maybe this means being more focused on the dangers or evils of the world and wanting to withdraw from it than in mercifully caring for the brokenness, lostness, and pain and seeking to bring peace. Maybe this is you not living a life of gentleness and humility, but feeling like that's okay because you're just saying what God says is true. And maybe your prayers sometimes sound like the Pharisee, thank you, God, that you have not made me like other men. Brothers and sisters, we are all guilty of these errors. Maybe one more than the other, maybe both, but we all need God's grace here. Both of these errors bring dishonor to our Savior and to our faith. And we need to mourn where we fall short and be poor in spirit and cry out for God's help to suffer well for righteousness' sake and for the sake of his name. You may have been tempted to think here today that this is all just too hard. You see all the ways that your heart desires other things besides Jesus, You see all the ways that shalom is broken in your own life, in your relationships, in the world around you, and you feel so powerless to do anything about it. You feel afraid to speak out and act out on your faith and righteousness, and you worry that you'll bring suffering on yourself and shame to your Savior because of your own sin. You're in the right place. You're poor in spirit. Take that feeling. Mourn hunger and thirst to be and do what God has called you to do. And in your weakness, call out to him for help. For where you are weak, he is strong. He will supply all of your needs. He will show you mercy. And through the renewing of your heart and mind, through prayer and God's word and the power of the spirit, he will turn you bit by bit, more and more, into the image of his son so that you will be called sons of God. This is his will for us, to realize our neediness, to call out to him for help, and to fight the good fight of faith. Not the way the world fights, but with humility, gentleness, mercy, peacemaking, willing to suffer on account of his name and for what he's called us to do. And while we won't do this perfectly in this life, we can hold on to the promise that all of this will be true for us in the shalom of the new heaven and the new earth. As the Jesus Storybook Bible says, look, God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying. Because all of those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. 
Everything sad has come untrue, and see, I have wiped away every tear from every eye. Let's pray. Father, we come before you seeing the high demands of your word and are crushed in spirit, knowing how often we fail and miss the mark knowing how selfish and self-absorbed our hearts are, knowing how often we pursue other things besides your kingdom, knowing how we fail to keep peace and shalom in our own life, in our relationships, in the world around us, knowing that we, we often will fail to speak and do what's right out of fear for suffering or that we do it in such a way that we bring on suffering because of our own sin. Father, we need your help. We come to you with empty hands, but we know that you are eager to help us. Father, we pray for the conviction that you have brought this morning. We thank you for it. We pray for repentance, that you would empower us and strengthen us to do what you have called us to do. We pray these things in your name. Amen.